and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know about some exciting things going on with myself and my business. First of all, uh, my new book, Shift Your Mind, is coming out October 6th. It is now available for pre-order. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and IndieBound. Pretty much wherever you get your books, it should be available. So go check that out. You can also find it at strongskills.co slash book. And over there, you'll see how you can order the book. Also, if you have a team or an organization, or heck, you just want to help me out and buy a bunch of these in bulk, please contact me at brian at strongskills.co. That's brian at strongskills.co. We're doing some pretty cool offerings for people that offer to purchase multiple books and really grateful to those of you that have already done so. So just reach out to me and, and we'll have a conversation about what you can do if you buy a bulk order. Also go over to strongskills.co and check out what we're up to. Uh, we've created an amazing team of coaches and speakers that can help your organization thrive. We have created these competencies that we call strong skills that are things like teamwork, communication, leadership, and we really believe that we can change the narrative with how organizations think about inner skills or what they have typically called soft skills. So we are on a mission to change how the world is thinking about developing their people. So feel free to reach out once again to me and and we can have a conversation about what we are doing. Really excited about that. Now to today's guest. If you follow basketball, college basketball, or the NBA over the last 20, 30 years, Danny Manning is a name that you're probably familiar with. He was the first pick in the NBA draft. He went to four Final Fours, including winning a national championship with the University of Kansas, where he also was the player of the year. He played in the NBA for 15 years, was a two-time All-Star, also won the Sixth Man Award coming off the bench, uh, and, and really had an illustrious career. As a coach, he's been the head coach at Tulsa and at Wake Forest. He was an assistant coach at Kansas where he helped them win a national championship 20 years after doing so as a player. So he has been at elite universities, played at the highest level in the world, and was also the 2014 Conference USA Coach of the Year with Tulsa. So he's 
coached a number of NBA players. He's played alongside some of the greats, and he's also been coached by legends in the field. I could go on and on about his resume and his bio. He is in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. He had his jersey retired from University of Kansas, which is a powerhouse of a basketball school, one of the best programs in the country. But most importantly, he's a man of honesty, character, work ethic. You're going to love learning about him and his story. So without further ado, I'm excited to present to you, Danny Manning. Danny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you today and learn about your journey, learn about your story. I've been following your career from afar, but uh, want to learn a little bit more about your perspective and walk in your shoes a little bit today. So um, I know you grew up in a basketball family, in a basketball town, um, but, but talk a little bit about your upbringing. What was life like for you as a kid? Um, I, I had a pretty good upbringing, you know, from what I can remember. Um, and for what my parents showed me, my father played professional basketball. He played in the ABA and NBA, and it was a uh, it was a cool experience. It was a lot of fun, um, you know. For me, as a basketball um, aficionado, looking back on some of the experiences I had, uh, I was very fortunate. Um, going to practices with my father, going to games with my father the different interactions I had with the many, many talented players in the ABA and NBA. Um, I just look back on it and just realize how fortunate I was. So I felt very fortunate and blessed to have the childhood that I had um, with my family and, and, and friends making it very special for me. Did you have any siblings? Yes. I have a sister, um, Don, younger sister. And uh, <laughs> we were, my father was a journeyman, so we, we moved around to a lot of different places, and there's my sister and I, and um, trying to figure out how to entertain ourselves and incorporate, ingrain ourselves into each community and each school that we moved to. Do you think that moving around helped you figure out how to navigate the world, or what, was, what do you think that built for you? Well, I think it built confidence in the sense of, you know, you're, you're walking into different situations and each time you walk into that situation, you know, you want to walk in there as a confident person, not knowing who you're going to meet, not knowing who your friends are going to be over a period of time, but just to walking in those situations, letting people know who you are and what you're about as a person. And, um, you know, for me, I think that the change was also beneficial in helping me navigate and, and, and understand and adapt to that as well. Mom, what was mom like as a kid? Uh, mom was always there. When my father playing professional basketball, the, the luxury of uh, private travel was not <laughs> used at those particular times. And so there was a lot of commercial flights. And so a long road trip was actually a long road trip. And so my mom, mom was there in the house every day, making sure we had everything we needed, got us to the practices and games and different events that we uh, needed to get to. So she was very, very um, supportive, um, loving, and she was also a school teacher. So, um, you know, it was, my father had the athletic side, my mother had the, the, the educational side, and it was, uh, it was pretty good for us. Supporting and loving, what were some of the other values that your parents passed down to you and your sister? Um, a lot about loyalty, caring for one another, loving one another. Um, a lot of compassion, um, you know, obviously there's forgiveness and, and, and empathy, um, just, just because, you know, just different people, you know, different areas that you live in, you, you run into different types of personalities and different types of people. And my parents always said, hey, 
judge that person for how they treat you. I love that. And did dad put a basketball in your hands, put pressure on you to play or what was the relationship like with dad, given that he played at the highest level? Um, never put pressure on me to play, but always told me whatever I do, do it to the best of my ability. Um, and basketball was the game was introduced to me um, by him. Um, and it was a lot of fun for me. You know, I started out, I didn't have a lot of interest. I'd go to practices, I'd run around the gym, I'd run up in the stands. Um, and the older I got, the, the more I enjoyed the game and, and I grew to love it. Um, but my father was someone that was a journeyman and he had to do all the little things on teams to, to make it, um, to make that team, to help that team be successful, whether it was boxing out, going to get a loose ball, diving on a 50-50 ball, setting a good pick, playing defense, being in the help spot for, for a defensive breakdown. Um, he had to do all those little things. So I, I learned to appreciate those types of um, things that are needed for all successful teams in basketball and to have a player like that. And that's how I was taught the game growing up. You know, you go out there and you try to make the game easier for someone else on your team. You said you learned to love the game. What did you love about basketball? Um, for me, it was just a chance to, to, to go out. And I spent a lot of time going to the rec center and playing with friends, going to the rec center and just shooting by myself and just trying to figure out different things on the court, whether it was how to shoot a bang shot. Um, you know, you go through the phase of, oh, I can dunk now, so I'm going to go through all these crazy dunks and then do all that. And then it just got to be a point where I just wanted to get better in my overall skill set. I want to become a better passer, a better dribbler. I wanted to understand angles better. I wanted to understand how to read people better in terms of when I'm out there on the court, um, when someone is getting ready to shot fake, what is the positioning of their feet and things of that nature that, you know, just try to become a little bit more of a student of the game, if you will, because, um, you know, my father always said athletically, there will always be more gifted players out there on the court. And you have to find every little advantage that you can to, to set yourself apart and be a little bit different. What other hobbies did you have growing up? Did you play any other sports, any other interests outside of basketball? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, I grew up in an era where whatever the season was, sports-wise, that's what we played in the neighborhood. Um, I always would gravitate back towards basketball, but football season, we played football. Basketball season, we played basketball. And, and I played all three sports growing up and got to uh, high school and, and, you know, needed to decide to focus in on one. And um, obviously I, I chose basketball and very happy with that choice. And what would you consider to be your home? You said you moved around a lot. Dad was a journeyman playing, moving to different areas. What, what, what do you consider to be home? Um, I'd probably say Lawrence, Kansas. Um, I, I spent the majority of my childhood in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, I moved to, well, we moved to Lawrence, Kansas days before the start of my senior year of high school. And went to my senior year there, went to four years of college there. And every off season for 15 years, I was blessed enough to play in the NBA. We made Lawrence, Kansas our home. And so for me, that's you know where I matured the most as a young man. That's where um, I graduated from. I met my wife. We won a championship and raised our kids there for the majority of uh, their lives. Senior year of high school, you're playing in Lawrence, Kansas. And for those that don't follow college basketball, University of Kansas is one of the all-time uh, 
programs in in the country. Was it clear senior year, you know, playing in in Lawrence that you wanted to go to Kansas, or were you thinking that you might want to go somewhere else? Well, Kansas, I didn't know much about Kansas when I moved there, to be honest with you. Um, you know, so my father gets a job there, and you know, he's immersed in learning, you know, the the system from Coach Brown and learning more about the university and the area. And for me, I, I just would start picking up the history books of Kansas basketball and started reading about, you know, Wilt Chamberlain, Jojo White, you know, Paul Mokeski, Bud Stallworth. I mean, you start reading about all these guys and it's just like, wow, this is, this is pretty rich. This is pretty, this is a pretty special place. And then I have a chance to, to go into the field house, Allen field house, great experience. If you're a basketball person, you got to go to a game at Allen Fieldhouse. It's really special. Um, and then for me, being able to go into the Fieldhouse and then get up shots on my own, and then um, the the community of Lawrence, Kansas, was 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 special. Uh, we only had one high school at the time, and uh, it was KU Sports, and it was Lawrence High Sports in the town of Lawrence, Kansas. And um, that was something that was a new experience for me because coming from Greensboro, we had multiple high schools. And to see the city rally around one high school, to see the city rally around one university was really special and unique. And then I get a chance to go to the games and sit back and take in the atmosphere. And then I go to practice and I see Coach Brown um, teaching and helping his, his players become better men, become better basketball players. It was an easy decision for me, and along with the fact that my mom could see every game that I played um, was, was a definite home run for me. Was dad coaching when you went, when you went and played there? Yes, he was. He was assistant coach. He sure was. And that was a, uh, that was a fun experience. That was a traumatic experience. That was a frightening experience. Um, my father was my biggest critic, but he was also my biggest fan. And um, he's someone that, um, you know, in, in my basketball philosophy as a coach has a huge impact along with Coach Brown and, and, and Bill Self and all the other coaches. But my father was the one that, um, definitely planted the seed um, for me about what you want to be as a basketball player on the court and, and, and things of that nature. You mentioned if you're a basketball person, you need to go to Kansas and watch a game. And I've been to Cameron Indoor. I went to Syracuse University and a lot of great games in the Dome. And I've been in some pretty cool environments. But when I was a freshman in, in college, and this will show my age, uh, it was – 2002 2003 I think it was the year before you went back to to coach it was probably your last year in the NBA and the reason you're not in your head is because you remember that year uh being a, a Syracuse orange man um and I'm down in New Orleans and we're watching the final four did you go to the final four that year did you go as a, as a fan or were you playing and no, you couldn't get I was, away? I was still playing I, I could not get away I was tuned in but I I could not physically be there so Syracuse University doesn't have much on Kansas when it comes to basketball, but we we have a a a game and a block that that we remember. But I, the reason I'm bringing up the story is so we're at the Final Four and Kansas is playing. Um, who are they playing? So we had Marquette, Syracuse, Kansas, and I don't know who Kansas beat to get into the finals. It doesn't really matter. But I'm um, in. You know the 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 Superdome at the time. And, and all of a sudden Syracuse uh, is finishing their game and they win. And before they start winning all of a sudden the, the whole stadium, you just start hearing them chant 
Rock Chalk, Jayhawk, KU. And it sounds like you're in church. And it's just this beautiful hymn that's taking over the entire arena. And I had never heard it before. And it was so cool. Uh, and then fortunately for me, the next game, Syracuse ended up just squeaking by. I think if that game had gone for another five minutes, Syracuse probably would not have won. And I'm fortunate we had Hakeem Warwick on this podcast to talk about his block shot in the corner. But um, ever since then, I've said I, I really would love to get to Kansas for a basketball game. So uh, it's still on my list because I know going to Cameron Indoor was pretty special. And I've talked to everybody and they all say you got to go to Kansas. So um, I'm sure it was an amazing experience for you. But I had to share that story um, with, with you. Um, that that was it was a rare time where Syracuse ends up a little bit a little bit higher than Kansas, but you're at Kansas and you have a remarkable experience where you get to go to Final Fours, um, which is not something that most basketball players get to experience. What was it like for you to consistently be playing in an environment that was special and intense and pressure filled every single year you were there? Well, you know the history of Kansas basketball is very special. Um, it goes back from the start of Dr. Naismith and over the years of different coaches that have come through and what they've meant to the program and what the players have meant to the program. Um, it, is, it is a family type atmosphere, regardless of when you played, um, you're always welcome and, and you always feel a part of it. And so for me um, and the teams that I played on, we, we just tried to continue to, to build and add to the tradition. And fortunate enough to play in a couple of Final Fours in 86 and 88. And, um, you know, it was a great time for us. It was a lot of fun. We got a chance to grow up. We got a chance to be on the biggest stage in college basketball uh, with, with a group of people that you really cared and, and about and, and you wanted them to have as much success as possible. And you wanted to make sure you did everything you could to put your team in a situation to be successful. And so for me, that's, that's kind of where it all boils down to. And um, a byproduct of that is having some success on the court. But the only reason we had success on the court is because of um, the great coaching that we had and Coach Brown and his staff and, and the unselfish players. And you mentioned loyalty as something that you grew up as a value. Was your loyalty also cultivated during your time at KU, you mentioned the family atmosphere. Was that something that you felt um, sort of grab hold of you and, and become more part of who you are? Absolutely. Um, you know, it's a special feeling to, you know, we talk about running out through the tunnel um, onto the court at Allen Fieldhouse and, and walking out there and running out there and seeing 16-3 every night that you play. Um, it, it's an incredible feeling, and it is a – overwhelming it is a humbling feeling but at the same time it's kind of intimate if you will for 16,300 people because you know everybody in that building for the most part you know we're all on the same team we all want to have the same goal which is for our team to be successful and we're trying to make it happen on the court and then everyone in the stands is trying to make it happen with their voice and their support and so it's it's a very special place. And winning a championship uh, in 88, and then you got 20 years later, you get to experience a championship as an assistant coach in 2008. 
what did you notice were the similarities between those teams as far as um, being championship caliber teams? What did you notice or observe or witness? Well, I thought, you know, the common denominator in all championship teams, there's a certain level of toughness that you have to, to grind through, to withstand any type of adversity or issues that you have to navigate throughout the course of the season, whether it's on the court or off the court and building that chemistry. And so, you know, that, that's always a part of the DNA for a championship team. Um, but, but for me, it was just enjoying playing with your college teammates, enjoying the people that you are around each and every day. And, um, you know, for me, I, I go back and I think about, you know, the situations that Coach Brown put us in to make us better people and make us better basketball players. I remember just sitting around and spending time with my teammates, whether we were goofing off or whether we were having some type of serious conversation. It, it all stemmed from a, a love for one another and, and wanting each other to be successful. Can you go back to the day of the national championship game in 88 and game day and just walk us through what you're feeling, what you're thinking before the game or what it's like during the game or after the game. And then I'd love for you to compare that to 2008 as an assistant coach and what that experience is like and maybe compare and contrast the differences from an individual perspective. Cause most people are not in that type of environment and you got to be in that environment in two different roles. So I'd love to just unpack that with you. Sure. Well, um, the 88 championship year was, was a special year, obviously, when you're the last team standing. But for me, it goes back to 1986, my sophomore year, when we make it to the Final Four. And that's in Dallas. And it's a great experience. It is a, um, an honor to make it to the Final Four. But when you get to the Final Four and you have a goal of winning a national championship and you fall short of that, um, it, it gives you extra motivation. It gives you extra drive. And so we go through that experience in 1986 where um, we, we lose to a very talented Duke team. And I didn't play well. And, you know, I feel like that had a lot to do with why we lost the ball game. And so for me, fast forward it to the same opportunity in 1988 in Kansas City, which is 35 minutes away from our campus. Um, my mindset was a lot different. I was a lot more mature. I was a lot more um, focused, if you will, in understanding everything that I needed to do to give our team the best chance to be successful. And not just me, but all the other seniors on the team and all the other guys that participated in that 86 Final Four. Um, we knew the hype surrounding the, the event, and we tried to maintain our focus as best as possible. But that's kind of hard to do when you're 30 minutes away from your campus and you're, you're so available to so many different people that were so close to campus that wanted to be a part of it. And so maintaining your focus was something that uh, we, I thought we did a very good job of. Um, but playing in Kansas City for the national championship or the Final Four, it, it was just – it was special. It was very special, and it was a tremendous advantage for us in regards to the amount of support that we received um, throughout that championship run. And, um, you know, I, I reflect back on the open practices that they have during the Final Four, and the building was packed. They're turning people away for an open practice. And an open practice is nothing more than you go out there, you get up a couple shots, you do a few drills and you, you have a few dunks and then you leave and you go back to the hotel and get prepared for the game. But 
that in itself, you know, when you, you go out there and, and you witness and you're a part of that environment as, as a, in a practice, you're, you're just blown away by it. And then hey, for Dan- Russ, hey, hey, Danny, before, yes. before you go on, and I'm curious to get your perspective as a coach, mm-hmm. but there's something that I'm curious about, which is, all right, you've got everybody in Kansas pulling for you. <laughs> you're 30 minutes away. It's your last shot at this. Why not go the other way and put added stress on you or feel tension or feel like, oh, this is something we have to do? Like, what helped you interpret all that as a good thing and, and, and not necessarily uh, go the other way? Well, I think a lot of for Russ was, I mean, we were playing a team in, in Oklahoma who coached by Billy Tubbs and had tremendous players. When you talk about Dave Seeger, who shot the lights out during that tournament, Mookie Blaylock, um, Harvey Grant, Stacey King, Ricky Grace. I mean, they were loaded. And so for us, they'd beaten us two times earlier in the season. And um, we had a level of comfort with them from the standpoint of we played in the same league. We watched tape on them. And we knew going into the ball game, we a certain level, a certain style of play we, we had to have out there on the court. And so there was a comfort level of knowing our opponent. That's one thing. And then the other thing was, not too many people expected us to win the ball game, but us. And so the last thing that, you know, one of the last things we say to each other going out there on the court, man, let's go have fun. Let's go lay it all out there on the line. Let's go see what happens. But regardless, man, let's enjoy this moment. And um, we did that. And, uh, you know, for us, all throughout that tournament run, every game that we played, there was somebody different on our team that made huge plays that, that contributed to us advancing. And um, that, in my estimation, put us, you know, in the situation to have a, a really good team. We're the best team because we weren't the most talented. We weren't the most athletic, but we all sacrificed for one another. And so playing that championship in Kansas City was very special because we were so close to our campus. And the majority of people that supported us throughout our time at Kansas had a chance to get to that environment, whether it's in the gym or whether it's outside or wherever it was, it was an electric atmosphere. But for us, we didn't feel any pressure. We weren't supposed to win. We weren't supposed to be there. And this team had beaten us a couple of times already. And so for us, it was just, let's go play. Uh, we know we can beat them. We feel we can beat them. We're prepared to beat them. We just have to go make it happen. And then as a coach, what was your mindset going into 2008? And uh, you're an assistant coach, uh, pretty loaded team as well. Um, but talk about that experience and sort of an all-time game as well and, and what that experience was like for you. I realized how naive I was in 88, <laughs> in 2008. Um, because as a player, you just feel like, oh, man, if I go out here and I work out and, you know, do the best I can, you know, we'll have a chance to win a championship and yada, yada, yada. And then as a coach, you realize, okay, wow, we got to make sure we got a good scout. We got to make sure that we're healthy. We got to make sure we have an understanding of personnel. We've got to execute. We've got to do this defensively. We've got to combat this because they do this really well. And so, you know, it's completely different feeling um, because you realize how much goes into winning a ball game at that level. Not that it doesn't happen or you're not prepared for a regular season game or a conference game, but to be playing for the championship, be on the biggest stage in college basketball, you realize a few things have to go your way. And so for me, it was uh, a little bit more overwhelming as a coach, to be honest with you. 
And part of that was because there was nothing I could do physically to change what was going to happen throughout the course of the ball game. Because um, as a player, you feel like you can have some type of impact. As a coach, it's more so you're communicating with your team, you're communicating with the guys that play the position that you coach and, and you're trying to share with them what you're seeing. And so it's a lot more nerve wracking after, um, you, you know, you realize that you can't go out there on the court. So, but the feelings of winning a championship, I mean, those, those are always the same. You know, you feel humbled, you feel fortunate, you feel blessed. Um, you know, I reflect back on the 88 championship and, my most fond memory is sitting in the locker room with my teammates after the game talking about, man, can you believe this? We won a national championship. And then we just start rattling off stories about what happened throughout the course of the year or what happened throughout the time that we've been at Kansas. And that was the most gratifying moment for me was sitting in the locker room with my teammates after the championship, realizing we'll never play again together. But, you know, we're leaving each other in, in, a, in a pretty good situation. And that was no different than 80, 2008. You know, we, we, it was a tough team in, in Memphis, and, and Coach Kyle and Derek Rose and those guys were super talented. But, you know, we had guys on our team that continued to battle, continued to fight, and, and never gave up. And, and that gave us a chance to extend the game, go into overtime. And, uh, you know, we make more plays than them down the stretch. Coach South has a great game plan. And, our guys lock in and find a way to win. And Rio hits a big shot, which probably doesn't hurt either, right? Huge shot. Huge <laughs> Biggest shots in the history of Kansas basketball. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, Mario Chalmers is who, who I, I'm calling Rio, like he's my guy. But uh, anyway, I, you know, you said something that caught my attention when you said in 88, you guys really focused on playing with joy and, and having fun. And I have a professional coach that I work with, a head coach, who had a really good career in the sport that he played. And I would always say to him, hey, have fun, coach. He's like, this isn't fun. This is, this is not the, – the, the, the time between the lines as a coach isn't fun. He's like, when I played, it was fun. The coaching, you know, I have a hard time having fun with. Uh, as a coach, have you changed sort of – the, the process in the last decade or so, um, and you've been at it now for almost 20 years coaching, are you able to have joy and fun um, as a coach when you're on the sideline? Or what's that experience like for you? I, I do have joy as a coach. Um, not a lot of it, and, and you find it in different ways. You know, for me, my, I find my joy in seeing players continue to evolve and get better have a better understanding of what they're trying to accomplish or um, you, you see them make a mistake in one game and then they're in the same situation down the road and, and they handle that situation a little bit better. I find joy in those moments um, when you see growth in, your, in, in the young people that you're, you're coaching. Um, and so for me, the game of basketball is fun and I enjoy it, but there is a certain level of stress that, that comes with being a coach. And a lot of it is, you know, you, you go through your preparation stage, you go through your scout, you go through your personnel, you go over the other team's plays. Um, and then at that point, you know, you, you want your team to go out there and execute it and do the things necessary to give themselves a chance to win. But the stress level that you feel as a coach is a lot different than as a player. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, like I said before, you're so naive and you're young and 
you're invincible when you're in college to a certain extent in your mind. And then you realize how fortunate you have to be throughout the course of a, a game and a season to, to be the last team standing or to win, period, because it's hard to do. You know, there's a uh, other focus that comes with being a head coach or really any coach is that you have to be focused on others and helping them. Whereas when you're playing, yes, you need to care about your teammates, but you can really focus on yourself and what you need to do. And while most of our listeners haven't been a head coach, certainly I haven't. Well, I've been a head coach, but not at the levels that, that you've been a head coach at. I, I think a comparison might be it's parenting, which is like, it's you know, it's a lot of other focus. You're constantly working. You're constantly worrying. You're constantly focused on the details and how to help. And it is exhausting and tiring and is super fulfilling because if you're part of something bigger than yourself and you're pouring yourself in other people, it's not maybe the same pleasure that you get from dunking a basketball, I imagine, but it might be something deeper, which is a happiness or a fulfillment um, and I think sometimes we get happiness and pleasure confused. Um, and as a parent, I've got two small kids. Like, th- there's a lot of happiness there, but there's a lot of pain and hardship and adversity that you go through trying to get your three-year-old to brush their teeth. I mean, it's like, there, it's really difficult, but it is very fulfilling. And I think it's, it's happiness. Uh, it's love. It's something a little bit deeper than maybe pleasure from, you know, just executing. So I don't know, does that resonate with you um, at all? It absolutely does. It is, you know, it's whatever team that you coach, it's, it's an extension of your family. Um, You know, it's like as, as a coach, you know, as, as a parent, when your children get to be a certain age, they become a little bit more independent and they can step out. They're able to drive, they're able to go different places with their friends and things of that nature. You really don't rest easy until they're back home. And every night as a coach, you know, you're the same feeling. It's like, oh, I hope the phone doesn't ring after a certain time because usually when that happens, it tends not to be so good. And so you're absolutely right. You know, coaching is an extension of of, of parenting. And, um, you know, the tough thing that you have to, to navigate is challenging everyone to be the best that they can be, to maximize their potential, to get as close to their ceiling as possible, and knowing that it's not always going to be a situation where it's fair in the kid's eyes. We have to do what's right. And a lot of times what's right is, you know, you have to treat each individual a little bit different to a certain extent. And um, it's, it's hard to do um, because a lot of times you, you, have, you have players that are, you know, uh, scorekeepers. You know, you yelled at him three times. You yelled at me four. You don't like me as much. Well, no, that's not necessarily the case. (laughs) And kids are the same way with their parents. Like, I'm one of three boys. As a middle child, I would be like, you're treating my younger brother like a prince. And we used to call him Prince of the North when Game of Thrones came out. Like, he was the prince and could do no wrong. (laughs) But I would do it, and all of a sudden, I'd be in trouble. The truth is, I, I... I probably deserved it, but that's a whole nother podcast. So I, I, I think there, there's something interesting there. I'm wondering for you though, and we're going to get into the NBA career. Um, so you played 15 years. Why go to college to coach rather than coaching in the NBA? And the reason I'm interested in this is I have friends that coach in the NBA. I have friends that coach in college. And you just said when you're a 
college coach, you're worried about that 18 to 23-year-old in the middle of the night getting a phone call. And anyone that spent time on a college campus knows exactly what you're talking about. It's no secret. So why not coach at the pro level where, yes, you could get a call, but you don't carry the same responsibility in the sense of looking after somebody or parents aren't dropping their kids off to play NBA ball and say, Hey, now he's your responsibility and make sure he stays out of trouble. Why not? Why not coach at the NBA level? Why have you spent the last, I think, 17, 18 years at the college level? Well, for me, it all started with my family. Um, When I was the end of my career, I was on a different team every year for the last part of my career. And um, I, my wife and I wanted to provide more stability for our kids in junior high and high school. And so the only way I felt like I could guarantee that happening was to, to get into college coaching because I wanted to coach. And, um, you know, Coach Self created a spot for me on the staff. And, um, you know, for me, my, my son was in fourth grade and hadn't been in the same school for a whole year because he would, you know, I get – go to a new team, sign as a free agent, get traded, what have you. They would start school off in Lawrence, Kansas, and then they would join me in the city that I was in. And so um, we just wanted to give our kids more stability. And so for me, it was, we're going to be here in Lawrence, and we're going to let them get through junior high. We're going to let them get through high school and go from there. And, um, you know, for me, going back to Kansas was, uh, was a wonderful opportunity. Um, was somewhere that, you know, for the last 15 years, well, actually it was 19 years because I was there every summer um, as, as a collegiate um, player. And so it was very comfortable for us. That's where I met my wife, and, and this is where we wanted to raise our kids. And that's how I, I, I got into the, the college aspect. That was the deciding factor. I always wanted to, to coach towards the end of my career because basically that's what I was when I was sitting on the end of the bench and I wasn't – in the rotation, you know, my contribution was talking to my teammates and telling them what I was seeing or, or different things that they could do to combat what was happening on the court. You know, I have had on another uh, Danny on the podcast, Danny Ferry, who, who played at Duke and had an amazing career at Duke. And yeah. similar to you, I mean, I think he was the second pick of the draft. You're the first pick. Um, you're both 6'10". Uh, and I actually was at Cameron Indoor with him and sort of could – watch how people regarded him for being a blue devil. Uh, I grew up in Maryland. So Duke and university of Maryland, like we don't have any love for Duke, but outside of that, like it was amazing to be at that, at that arena. And I know you've spent time in that arena as well, but I'm curious for you being tall, being noticeable, noticeable, being recognizable. What's it like for you being in a place like Lawrence where your jersey's up in the rafters, all-time leading scorer, college hall of fame. I mean, really decorated in a, at a basketball program that's got all kinds of decorated basketball players. What's it like for you navigating the town as somebody who's recognizable, famous, what have you? You know, one of the, the great parts about, you know, being a, a Jayhawk um, is the amount of support that you get. Um, from, from the community, from the state, from the surrounding areas, from Jayhawk Nation. And that's just something you have to navigate. Um, it's, you know, as a teenager, sometimes you don't understand it um, because you feel like you, hey, I'm away from the court. I can go blend in with this group over here. And it's like the truth of the matter is I'm, I'm not blended in anywhere. 
Um, you know, like I said, at 6'10", I'm, I'm noticeable no matter where I go. And that's just kind of, you know, part of the journey that I've been on as, as, as a person. And, um, you know, understanding that every time I walk out of the door, I'm easily recognizable from my size alone. And, you know, I just got to act accordingly, I guess. I don't know any other way to, to describe that because that, that's always been um, what I've had to navigate. As a basketball player, I'm curious about blending in and sticking out. So you come in, first pick of the draft, um, you know, two-time two All-Star. We're going to get into knee because I tore my ACL five and a half years ago playing ball, and we're going to talk about the ACL. But before we do that, uh, the ability to be a starter and a star compared to being a sixth man off the bench and you won the sixth man award, can you talk about the mindset of sticking out as an All-Star compared to maybe coming off the bench and trying to play a different role. And um, as your career evolves, you, you got the opportunity to add value to the team in all kinds of different ways. So I'm just curious as a player, what your mindset is like as an all-star and, and sort of the need to stick out, like give me the ball um, versus maybe other times where you played a different role and having to fit into a system and, and what that might've been like for you. Well, I think the, the biggest thing that you have to understand is your role. And everybody has different roles on every team. All the roles are valuable. And you, you have to, to be the best that you can possibly be for the role that you have. And so when you're a starter or you're a guy that's dependent on the score points, you have to figure out a way to get that done. Obviously, your teammates do a tremendous job of helping set you up, whether it's setting picks to get you open or giving you the basketball or communicating to you out there to make the game easier for you. That's your role. Um, and, and you adapt to those roles. And, you know, for me, I didn't feel any pressure in any role that I had because I was part of the, the greater whole. This is what I needed to do for our team to have success. It was more so always the, the feeling of if I don't fulfill my role, I'm letting my teammates down. And so that was the mindset that, that you know, I had and that was – driven into me at an early age, whether it was my father, whether it was Coach Brown or, or getting on the, the staff at Kansas and listening to, to Coach Self talk about the pie is big enough for all of us if we do what we're supposed to do. And, you know, that's just the mindset that I had. So as a player, um, you know, in my early years with the Clippers, I was looked upon to, to score more points and, and do things of that nature. And um, that was just a role that I tried to go out there and do to the best of my ability, but I also wanted to make the game easier for my teammates. Um, as a sixth man, I, I really enjoyed that role because I got a chance to see the game unfold right in front of me. I got a chance to see who was playing well, who wasn't playing well. And a lot of times when I would check in, the guys that I was playing up against, they were still in and because they started the game. And so I felt like I had somewhat of an advantage in my mind because I was a little bit fresher. Um, a lot of those guys were much better athletes than me, could run faster and jump higher. But, you know, that's how I created a, an, an advantage or an edge in my head on the, as a sixth man. And then as a guy who was out of the rotation, I thought my role was to share with my teammates. Um, a kind of a coach, if you will. Hey, when you come off the ball screen, they're playing it this way. Or when you're in the post, you know, he's trying to take this away from me. Why don't you try to use this footwork to give yourself better positioning and things of that nature? And so, you know, whatever role you have, you try to fulfill it to the best of your ability to help your team. 
it's clear that you're a wee guy. Um, when you were in Los Angeles after being the first pick of the draft, was anybody hoping that you would be more selfish and, and not be uh, like stick out more rather than fit in? Was there ever anyone, or do you look back and think like, maybe I should have been a little more me, me focused. Uh, I'm just curious to get your thoughts on that. No, you know, I always felt basketball is a team sport and um, you know, a lot of different guys get notoriety for a lot of different reasons. The majority of the time is when you score a lot of points. Um, but, you know, there's roles for guys that are great defenders, great distributors, things of that nature. But also for me, you know, I, I tore my ACL um, 20-something games into my rookie year. And, and so for me, it was um, not only trying to figure, come back from that injury that at the time was considered career-threatening, um, come back and still be able to find a way to contribute to help my team. And, um, you know, it, it took me some while to come back from the ACL. Um, that first year back, I was back out on the court. I was happy to be back out on the court. I was thankful and fortunate and blessed, but I didn't have the same type of um, athletic ability, if you will, before the injury. And so trying to figure out how to navigate that and still be effective, it, it took me about a year or so to understand what I needed to do and also get my body back to where it needed to be to compete at that level. Everyone thinks of Adrian Peterson now with the ACL and this guy comes back in like six months and he's just a machine. And I, I tore mine, as I said, five and a half years ago. And I will tell you, I was definitely not Adrian Peterson and still not. Um, and I think you tore yours three times. Yes, I did three times. And so here's the other thing for people that haven't gone through the ACL. First of all, it sucks. <laughs> like it, it is a painful deal. Um, and so how did you navigate that? How did you have the grit and determination to come back each time um, and still have the drive to overcome that? Because I did one and like I was pretty spent after it and uh, I, I still try to play some basketball, but definitely not as much, but you're playing in the league. Like what was that like for you going through three of those? It was a lot of different emotions. You know, when I, when I tore my ACL the very first time, um, it was considered career-threatening. I think Bernard King was in the midst of his comeback, and he was someone that um, I, I definitely kept tabs on in terms of helping motivate me. Um, I always thought as a basketball player, um, my versatility was one of my biggest strengths. And I thought I was versatile enough as a player where I could be moved around to a lot of different positions on the court. And going through the ACL injury, uh, my mindset was I, I, I want to get back and be the same player, but if I'm not, I'm still 6'10 and I can become a true post player. And so that was kind of the mindset that I had going into it. Uh, but I have to go back. I mean, Dr. Steven Lombardo, who did all three of my surgeries, was a terrific surgeon. Um, Clyde Brewster was my master therapist. Johnny Doyle was a therapist. Carl Horn was my physical therapist, tra personal trainer, all these people contributed to, to helping me come back from, from my very first injury. And, um, you know, from there, it was just figure it out. You know, there's, there's no blueprint for coming back from an ACL in, to play in the NBA in the early 90s. I mean, there's not. You know, you just got to figure it out as you go. And so for me, um, everything was based upon – trying to be as prepared as possible. Um, 
became a little bit more of a student of the game, if you will, after I tore my first ACL in terms of studying my opponents. Um, I used to have a, a book that I carried around, an Eastern Conference book and a Western Conference book that just had breakdowns of each individual player that I would match up up against and, and talk about the favorite moves that he liked to make, you know, left foot pivot, right foot pivot, right-handed, left-handed. Does he go better? Go, is he right-handed, but does he go better going left? Things of that nature um, to try to give myself an advantage because I thought if I had a little bit more or better anticipation, it could make me a little bit quicker. So that was my mindset. And so I'm able to come back from the first injury um, and, and, and make, you know, a couple all-star teams. I'm very fortunate for that. Um, I, I get to the Phoenix Suns, which is a team that I chose as a free agency and playing for Jerry Colangelo and the Suns. And um, halfway, not even halfway through that, that season, I blow my knee out again the second time. And mentally the second time was a little bit easier because – I've already experienced it. I know what I need to do. And, and so that rehab went and uh, got back out on the court. And then the third time, it was like, okay, here we go again. I know what I have to do. The surgery for this one's a little bit different because I went with the allograft um, tendon. And that tendon, an allograft tendon, is a, is a ligament from a cadaver that they put into my body. And so you already have the, the girth of the muscle and you just waited on the blood flow. And so that rehab was actually a little bit easier um, but but for me you know going through it three times each time that I went through it it actually got a little bit easier mentally for me because I knew what I needed to do and I've done it before all right well now I can play ball again and maybe I'll be okay if it happens. <laughs> you mentioned playing for for legends we got Larry Brown Don Nelson Lenny Wilkins Jerry Sloan I think like you you played for guys who are hall of famers what did you pick up from them what did you notice about them and they're all different I think about those guys from the outside looking in there's a lot of differences in that in that group of coaches that I just mentioned uh and all are th those four guys I just mentioned have their own way of doing things but what did you learn from them? What did you pick up from them? Oh, for me, I've, I've had you know, a lot of great coaches, and uh, but but three mentors, if you will, for me um, that that kind of based my philosophy as a coach from my father, from Coach Brown, and from Bill Self. Um, those were the three coaches and men in, in coaching positions that I've been around the longest in in my career as a player or as a coach, and. Um, so those three have always had a huge impact on my mindset and on my philosophy. But every coach that I've ever played for that I can remember has had some type of impact as well. And some of it is, you know what, I like this. I want to try to incorporate this. And some of it is I don't like this and I'm not going to. And, but everyone's had in some way, shape, or form a little bit of an impact on, on what I think um, my philosophy should be as a coach. And so, you know, I go back and, you know, Coach Brown. Coach Brown was relentless in challenging us every day to be the best that we could be. And, um, you, you know, that's hard to accept at times when you're, when you're a teenager and, you know, you got a few other different thoughts running through your mind at times. But, you know, that mentality was, was something that I, I definitely um, learned and picked up on in wanting to coach my players to be as close to their ceiling as possible each and every day and understand that there are going to be days that my players don't like me 
and that goes back to the parenting piece that we talked about earlier. It's okay. That's fine that you don't like me, but this is how we're going to do it because this is what's best for you. Um, and then, you know, I go back to my father and, and the little things that he had to do to be on team to be successful. And then I, I look at coach self and, and, and how he was very demanding of his team, but he was also um, there for his guys. He also had a really good connection relationship with his players. And so, you know, those are all things that I tried to incorporate um, in my philosophy as a coach. And then also it, it changes with the times. You know, it's a little bit different. When I got my first head coaching job at Tulsa, um, I was full of energy and gung-ho and let's run down the hill, run down the hill. And and now, you know, after doing it for a few years, I'm going to get down the hill, but I'm going to take my time getting down there because there are a few other things we need to get, navigate as we go. You mentioned philosophy over and over again. What would you say your, your coaching philosophy is? Um, my coaching philosophy is, is to help my – players become the best possible players and people that they can become. Um, I, I think some of the schemes that you use will be based upon the talent level that you have and, and things of that nature. I mean, and, and so for me, um, stressing education is important. And the reason I say that is because it's hard playing in the NBA. It's hard making it to the NBA. The number of young people playing collegiate basketball and the number that makes it to the NBA that next year. I mean, you've only got a first round of guaranteed picks and then I'll give you five more. Let's say they're 35. They're 35 slots going into the NBA every year and understanding that it's, it's tough to make it. It's tough to, to, to stay there. You have to be fortunate. You have to be pretty good and you have to have a certain level of, of confidence as a player. Um, but that's the one thing that I, I really wanted to stress to, to all my teams that I've coached is education is important because regardless, at some point in time, the ball's going to stop bouncing. At some point in time, you're not going to be, you're going to be told you're not good enough to play this game anymore. And then you have to be ready to adapt and, and make it work. And so for me, I always try to share with all of our players that basketball is something that you do. It's not who you are. And I think a lot of times, a lot of former athletes are kind of lost because their whole identity is wrapped up in the, the, the athlete part. I'm a basketball player, or I'm a football player, or I'm a baseball player, or I'm a hockey player. And then when that sport is taken away from you, you kind of lose your identity a little bit. And so for me, it was always stressing that this is something that you, you do. It's not who you are. You mentioned the game changing and I think about you as like a stretch big and perhaps like your ability to play in today's NBA would have been pretty seamless. I would imagine as the game has spread out more and your skills would have been able to shine, which is just an interesting thought. I don't know if you ever think about that. I'm sure you do. Um, but I think about the fact that you were a four year player and I think the last like first pick of the draft that was a four-year player. It might've been Tim Duncan uh, at Wake Forest. I might be wrong about that, but the game has changed in the sense of four years versus one and done. And what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you mentioned loyalty and the experience in Lawrence and this idea that you're a Jayhawk for life and everywhere you go, they've got your back. And certainly you mentioned Derrick Rose earlier. People in Memphis are probably grateful for Derrick Rose. I mentioned Syracuse earlier. I'm certainly grateful to Carmelo Anthony. Um, 
but I'm just curious to get your perspective, given that you were the first pick in the draft after being at Kansas. Um, I'm just going to leave it open-ended just to get your perspective on being there for four years compared to leaving after one and maybe the pros and cons of, of, of that. Well, you know, for me, I, I, I think there have been a lot of young people that have gone into the league without going to college. Um, I think there have been a lot of college players that have played one year and have moved on to professional ranks um, and done very well. Um, but it's still hard to do. You know, it's so hard to do. And regardless of how much success that young men have had that have gone to college uh, for one year and had no college at all, you know, they still weren't prepared for it, to be honest with you, because you, you don't know what it entails. Now, it doesn't mean you don't do well, but it, it just means that, you know, the experience, you look back on it and you go, wow, I could have had a little bit more experience walking into this situation. Um, and so for me, I needed four years of college. Um, four years of college helped prepare me for a 15-year career. Um, I had a college teammate, Archie Marshall, who blew his knee out, tore his ACL in college two times, and I watched him come back from those. And so seeing that helped prepare me and put me in a situation where mentally I felt like I could come back from my ACL injuries. And so, you know, that's just one of the stories and, and one of the experiences for me that college was good for me. I was not prepared um, my freshman year or after my sophomore year, even after my junior year, to be a professional basketball player because mentally I was not where I needed to be especially after having gone through that as a, as a pro basketball player. And everybody's a little bit different. They handle things differently. But, you know, for me, uh, I'm glad I stayed four years and, and it worked out very well for me. Now, would I stay four years in today's era? Probably not. <laughs> you know, probably not. But, um, you know, that was not my journey. And, and so for me, I, I felt – my college years helped prepare me for everything that I went through, especially injury-wise in the NBA and being able to have some type of resolve and, and fortitude to continue to fight and battle. You talked about carrying around that piece of paper and having the scout real attention to detail, almost like pre-analytic stuff, like you wanted every detail on your opponent and that you started to think the game and learn the game. Was there anything routine-wise or anything intentional that you would do either on game day to set your mind to make sure that when you stepped on the floor and it was game time, you were ready to go? You know, for me, a lot of it, um, just following the news, to be honest with you, um, looking at the, the box scores in the paper of, okay, the guy that I'm playing up against had a really good game yesterday. He 26 points, you know, six rebounds, five assists, a couple blocks, and, and try to look at his shooting percentage, see what he shot from the free throw line, see how many fouls he committed, see the turnover count, um, and, and things of that nature. That's where, you know, for me, that's where I try to study the game. And then I studied the – just tried to have a feel for his foot positioning when he shot the basketball. Because a lot of times your feet give away um, – clues as to what you're going to do and so for me if you were a shooter and you had your feet shorter width apart and your legs were up under you and when you bent down your your knees went over your toes and that's how you jumped up to release the basketball then I tried to ingrain that into my head and so a lot of times guys are shot fake and if a shooter has 
two feet on up under him, one foot is out to the side or outside of his body and he shot fakes, you know, I, I, I try to discipline myself into not going for those types of fakes and things of that nature. So that was more so my my prep. And then also um, going through the ACLs, I had a routine that I needed to go through to get my body ready and prepared to play in all games. And as a coach, what, what's it like on game day as a, as a, as a head coach, let's just go to that. You're at Tulsa, you're at wake and you're preparing for, for a game. What does it look like the day of the game? Day of the game, you wake up depending on obviously when, when the game is, well, let's say it's the evening game, a seven o'clock or eight o'clock game. You get up, you go to breakfast um, breakfast is over. Um, during the course of breakfast, you're talking to the, to the staff and, and things of that nature. You're just talking to the scout coach about, you know, any other things that you picked up on or this is what I picked up on when I was watching film last night. Work on our shoot-around game plan, what we needed to cover, what we needed to work on. Um, go back to my room, go over some more notes get on the bus, go to shoot around, have our shoot around, come back from shoot around, go back to the room, go over my notes again, um, take a nap for a little bit if I could, and then go down to pregame meal and come back from pregame meal and you get into your game studying mode again. You might watch some more film, go over more notes. You're the notes that you're going over, you're really tightening them up at this point. Um, I spent a lot of time working on the different sets offensively that we could run against this type of team um, about the counters that we could throw with them that a little bit different than what we've done in the past um, because they're watching film on us also. And then, you know, you, you, you shave, you shower, you get your suit on, you get ready to go to the game and, and that's it. And so you get to the game and, you know, a lot of time for that, but probably the first 30 minutes that I was, at the game, you know, everybody's out warming up. I'm still going over my notes and trying to get my mental preparation going. And then uh, you come back, you go into the locker room, you visit with the team, they go out, warm up, they come back in, you visit with them again, you give them the last pointers and reminders, and then you go out there and you, and you go to battle. During our conversation today, you, you lit up when we talk about Kansas and we talk about your experience there. And I go back to your senior year of high school and you're talking about being in the gym and sitting in at practices. What was it like for you to then have your jersey retired uh, and see it go up on the rafters? And I'd love for you once again to take us to that, that experience. What did it feel like in your body? Uh, maybe the emotion of, of that for yourself. If the College Basketball Hall of Fame is a similar reaction, you know, feel free to go there as well. But I'd love to just understand like, what that emotion's like for you. Um, well, for me, I was in the NBA, and I got a call that my num my name and jersey was going to go up in the rafters, and um, immediately thought, "Wow, this is pretty cool." And then it became a very uh, humbling type of feeling, um, realizing that um, it's a name and a number that will be associated with me. But so many people helped that happen so many people helped make that a reality all my teammates all my coaches all the people that supported me and and helped me along the way and so for me it was uh it was kind of a surreal type moment you know we go back to the game and at the time it's um we leave LA it's my wife and I Julie and our daughter Taylor and um I still have pictures we have a picture on the wall that 
as a, during your retirement ceremony as we're watching it go up. And so it, it was it was a cool experience for me. And it was also um, a chance to come back to, to Allen Fieldhouse and witness that again um, from a different perspective, not as a player, but as, as a fan of the, the Jayhawks and, 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 and that type of mindset. And so for me, it was very fortunate and very humbling type of experience to, to go back and, and you see your your name go up and you see your number go up. And um, you know, so, so for me, it was just very, very thankful and very blessed to have that opportunity. College Basketball Hall of Fame, the exact same feeling. I'm extremely humble, um, fortunate, you know, to, to have a coach in Larry Brown, have a staff that, you know, we hadn't even talked about that yet. But, you know, we go back and, you know, Bob Hill, who ended up coaching in the NBA for a while. John Calipari was there. Bill Self was there. Alvin Gentry was there. R.C. Buford was there. Greg Popovich was there. I mean, Coach Brown brought through some legendary dudes to help us um, be the best that we can be on and off the court. And uh, so for me, I, it was just a humbling experience, a very thankful part of my journey. But I realized that none of it would have happened without the contributions of a lot of wonderful, unselfish people. And I think Coach Brown's still coaching, right? Nope, Coach Brown's not coaching right Stop. now, a, a team per se, but he's still coaching. He's still calling all of his players that are coaching. He's still calling everybody, and he's sharing his wisdom like he always does. And, uh, you know, the game of basketball is it's something that will always be with Coach. And, and you know, he, he does so much to help out his former players um, from college, um, professionally, and all of his friends in the profession. Anyone that's ever – been around him just talks about how obsessed he is with basketball and um, like always, always coaching, always interested in basketball. And I'm seeing you smile and nod your head uh, yes. sort of in agreement. Look, I, I'm excited to see where you go um, next in your journey and, and follow along. Um, is there anything that you want to promote or is there anything that you are passionate about a nonprofit or, or something that you think deserves more attention than, than what it gets that you want to raise awareness about? Well, you know, right now, I think with what we have going on in our country, it's just the, the, the racial and social injustices that are going on. You know, it's at the end of the day, if we're all kind and loving to one another, um, we'll help erase a lot of the issues that we're having to navigate right now. And so, you know, that's probably the, the thing that's most heavy on my mind is, is, is being the best person that I can be and being someone that can affect change by how I carry myself, my kindness towards other, others and, and understand that, you know, we, we have to be sympathetic. We have to have a lot of empathy. We have to have tolerance. We have to have patience. We have to have understanding. But at the same time, we need some results. It's a beautiful place. We could, we could start the podcast from there and go, go talk about it. But um, are you on social media at all? Um, yeah, but right now, um, in my transition, I'm, I'm, I'm re rebranding, if you will. And so, um, yeah, I'm in the 
process of rebranding all my social media. And so I'll have that up and running again, hopefully within the next month or so. All right. Well, if you send that over to us, we'll throw it in the show notes and, and get people right. to you. I'm on Twitter. I like Twitter. I'm at Brian Levinson. I'm also on LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. Uh, those are two sp- spots I like to play in. And then I do some Instagram intentional underscore performers. Uh, thank you so much for, for giving me your time. Uh, this has been a lot of fun and looking forward to continuing to learn with you and uh, learn from you and, and have more conversations in the future. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. You know, there's, there's no blueprint for coming back from an ACL in, to play in the NBA in the early 90s. I mean, there's not. You know, you just got to figure it out as you go. And so for me, um, everything was based upon trying to be as prepared as possible. Um, Became a little bit more of a student of the game, if you will, after I tore my first ACL in terms of studying my opponents. Um, I used to have a a book that I carried around, an Eastern Conference book and a Western Conference book that just had breakdowns of each individual player that I would match up up against and, and talk about the favorite moves that he liked to make, you know, left foot pivot, right foot pivot, right-handed, left-handed, does he go better, is he right-handed, but does he go better going left, things of that nature, um, to try to give myself an advantage because I thought if I had a little bit more or better anticipation, it could make me a little bit quicker. So that was my mindset.